Michelle Obama got major props for her speech at the Democratic National Convention last night. The top producers on The Ellen Show were fired after BuzzFeed News reports about the toxic work environment there. And New York Times opinion writer Charlie Warzel is here to explain how QAnon went mainstream. The date, August 18th, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Casey, before we get into it, I, I want to share this with you. It's this frankly amazing clip from last night that I cannot stop thinking about. Please. You know, the president may hate the post office, but he's still going to have to send them a change of address card come January. Oh, oh no. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, no, I cannot do this anymore. That was Business Insider's Manny Fidel during a live stream reacting to Senator Amy Klobuchar's joke at the DNC last night. And and I just can't. I love it. I love how <laughs> dumb that joke was. The jo- of course you would love that joke. The joke is so good. And I think besides the joke just being like a classic her joke, I think everyone's grateful that she didn't do that blizzard joke again. Ah, uh, true. <laughs> a classic of the 2020 campaign genre. <laughs> okay, time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. The Democratic National Convention kicked off last night for the first of four entirely remote evenings. Among the highlights of night one were several moderate Republicans who crossed the aisle to warn against Trump's reelection. That includes former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who said, quote, time to take off our partisan hats and choose the right path. It also featured the Democrats who ran against presumptive nominee Joe Biden, including Senator Bernie Sanders. In his speech, Sanders called for party unity to defeat President Trump in November. This election is the most important in the modern history of this country. In response to the unprecedented crises we face, we need an unprecedented response, a movement like never before, of people who are prepared to stand up and fight for democracy and decency and against greed, oligarchy, and bigotry. And we need Joe Biden as our next president. The highlight of the night, though, for many, was former First Lady Michelle Obama. Her 18-minute speech was pre-recorded, but still managed to wow people with her poise, her custom-made vote necklace, and this particularly sharp shot across the bow at President Trump. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Meanwhile, a new bipartisan report in the Senate concludes that, yes, Russia interfered in the U.S. election in 2016, and the Trump campaign chair was part of the problem. The Senate Intelligence Committee has been one of the few places where Republicans and Democrats work together to look into exactly what happened in 2016. They've already issued four volumes, and today's final report is a real barn burner. In it, both parties agree, among other things, that former campaign chair Paul Manafort represented, quote, a grave counterintelligence threat for his ties to people connected to Russia's intelligence agencies. They also determined that the Trump campaign worked to undermine the attribution of the WikiLeaks drops to Russia. It also, though, said that the FBI, in its initial investigations, made some missteps, including giving too much credence to allegations about Trump's Russia ties. The parties split, though, in their focus on what lessons to learn from the report. 
The committee's Republicans, minus former Chair Richard Burr, stressed the lack of official collusion with the Russian government during the election. The Democrats, though, noted that Trump campaign officials and Russian operatives working together was a real and major threat and continues to be moving forward into this election. Okay, do you know what I'm seriously impressed about? Um, That I was really thinking there was going to be a lot of technical issues during the DNC. (laughs) (laughs) Right, actually, it seems really smooth so far. I'm not going to lie, like, no fumbles. I don't want to jinx it. We still have more days to get through. (laughs) Days and days to get through. But no, it was really smooth. And uh, one of the things that I saw uh, as far as analysis that was interesting was that because it was all so tightly packed together, the cable news channels couldn't cut away to their analysts. Otherwise, they might miss something. (gasps) And so we just got the content without having to listen to like panels of people explain what that speech we just heard meant. That's so interesting. I love that. Right? I don't know if it's on purpose, but let's keep this going. Yeah, I don't think it was on purpose. (laughs) Okay, Casey, what do you have? Okay, well, the three top producers on The Ellen Show were fired yesterday after allegations of harassment and work misconduct. Ellen DeGeneres herself announced the departure of executive producers Ed Glavin and Kevin Lehman and co-executive producer Jonathan Norman in a video conference with the show's crew on Monday. She also said that an investigation into the workplace culture on the show would be finished soon. BuzzFeed News' investigation into the show uncovered many of the allegations that got the three former producers fired. Those allegations included Glavin inappropriately touching staffers, Lehman requesting sexual favors from staffers. Moreover, 47 former employees told BuzzFeed News that Glavin led with intimidation and fear on a daily basis. Five of them also said they saw Glavin use a button at his desk to remotely shut his office door, quote, as an intimidation tactic during reprimands. Former employees told BuzzFeed News they were shocked the show took action in response to the misconduct allegations, with one former employee saying Ellen staffers were, quote, living in fear of retribution for speaking out and for sharing these things that had been swept under the rug for so long. A current Ellen Show employee told BuzzFeed News they were surprised to see DeGeneres herself address staffers in Monday's video conference call and said the announcement left them feeling, quote, optimistic and hopeful. And moving on, Disney finally has a bisexual lead character, according to the creator of the Disney Channel animated series, The Owl House. The Owl House follows the story of Luce Nosita, a 14-year-old who's on her way to becoming a witch. Previous episodes have shown Luce to be attracted to male characters, but the two most recent episodes have her asked to grom, which is like prom, but you know, witchy, by a girl named Amity. Luce says yes, and she shares a dance together with Amity. Despite the pain of repeated heartbreak and rejection, LGBTQ fans of the show immediately started asking online whether this meant what they thought it meant. This time, though, series creator Dana Terrace confirmed that they were right, even though a Disney had allegedly originally said no queer characters could be in the show. Terrace wrote on Twitter, quote, I'm bi. I want to write a bi character, damn it. Luckily, my stubbornness paid off, and now I am very supported by current Disney leadership. Disney has had queer characters before, but usually as minor or supporting characters or just completely gaslighting us into believing that Elsa is straight. She ain't. She is not. (laughs) But you know what? Good for Disney. I'm glad they came around on this one. Yeah, I'm not going to go so far as to say good for Disney. I know. I keep keep doing that on this show and you keep accurately correcting me. I won't say good for it, but it's it's about time. And you know, you know my stances on this. I mean, they have they have rainbow uh, Mickey Mouse ears before they had a, a bisexual lead in a show. So that's where we're at. But I'm glad that she's there, and I am 
so glad that it's a 14-year-old because now people who are preteens and in high school, they get to see someone like this and be like, oh, wait a second, that's me. Because as someone who's bisexual, it is hard because it's like being attracted to men. You're like, oh, I fit in this box. And then so you don't really realize that there's another box you can fit into. And maybe it's not even a box at all. Maybe it's just a flat plain field. Who knows? (laughs) When we come back, we've got Charlie Warzel talking about QAnon. Stay right there. At SheFit, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. For my small bookstore to thrive, I can't just sell books. So I created a radio ad at iHeartAdBuilder.com to tell everyone about our author events, our story hours for kids, and our amazing lattes. Now we're busier than ever. I'd call that a success story. A custom radio ad from iHeartAdBuilder is the fast, affordable way to drive customers to your business. Put the power of radio to work for you. Get started now at iHeartAdBuilder.com. Open to all teams and players, the NFL's Inspire Change Initiative acknowledges the ways that systemic racism contributes to barriers to opportunity and equality and focuses on ongoing efforts on creating progress in the areas of education, economic advancement, community and police relations, and criminal justice reform. To learn more about the NFL's commitment to ensuring a more equal and just future, text NFLIC to 635635. It takes all of us to advance social justice. Welcome back. We're in something of a golden age for conspiracy theories and misinformation. And over the last three years, one theory has grown from a few messages about the president fighting a secret pedophile ring to a movement that has ensnared thousands of people in the U.S., including at least one future congressperson. We're joined by New York Times opinion writer Charlie Warzel, who this week wrote a piece titled The Week QAnon Went Mainstream. Hello, Charlie. Hey, how you guys doing? Great. So let's go back a bit. When did you first hear about this conspiracy theory, QAnon, and what did you first think about it? The first time I was really made aware of like the extended universe of uh, QAnon was through a New York Magazine article written by the uh, technology journalist Paris Martineau. Uh, and she uh, sort of took a lot of the threads and put it together as something that was sort of a coherent conspiracy world that was building intensity around the internet. And that was sort of the first time that I took, a, you know, the 20,000 foot view of it. And, uh, and I gotta be honest, you know, I, you know, like, I think most people was like, this is, you know, this is batshit and, uh, and clearly only going to appeal to the, you know, most, most terminally online segments of, you know, conspiracy land. And that's what I thought at the time. So that clearly isn't what happened. And in your piece, uh, you put a lot of the blame for the growth of this conspiracy theory on social networks, especially Facebook. So what changes did Facebook make to help QAnon spread beyond, like you said, the most terminally online of people? 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this, you know, Facebook did not create uh, this conspiracy theory and it didn't start in in their world. This, you know, started on the message board 4chan, uh, where a lot of, you know, the, the worst stuff on the Internet tends to originate. And it got very popular on Reddit as well. But but Facebook, I believe, and other people who followed it uh, really attribute it with supercharging the conspiracy theory and really sort of making it accessible to a larger audience. And that is through mostly Facebook groups and pages uh, because they are, you know, a lot of them private. They're not really subject to the same moderation scrutiny. It's not like a journalist like myself or you guys or any of us can kind of just like waltz in and see this and go, oh, my God. Uh, you know, you have to sort of penetrate those communities with, you know, investigative reporting. And a lot of times it just we just never see it. So we don't even know how big it is. But in 2017, uh, about uh, probably four months before the first Q post, Mark Zuckerberg invited all these Facebook group and community managers to a summit in Chicago. It was Facebook's inaugural community summit. And I went back recently and I watched the speech and it's just very, um, it's like living in an alternate, you know, universe. It's basically, you know, this internet utopia, super positive. We want to create strong communities. And one thing that he says that's pretty amazing in it is basically, in the real world, you don't just like scroll through, flip through a book and say, I'm going to join X group, right? You like, you don't, you get recommended via word of mouth or via, you know, some, someone who understands you and says, Hey, I know you like bikes. Come to this bike meetup, right? Something like that. And they wanted to replicate that at scale, at Facebook scale, which means for billions of people. So they talked about how they were training, you know, a recommendation algorithm to feed you up this type of stuff that would be a meaningful, quote-unquote, meaningful community view. And so when you look at a lot of the reporting that a lot of great technology journalists have done around QAnon, they've always surfaced that once you express a little bit of interest in a fringy world, right, whether it's, you know, you're dabbling in the anti-vax community, you're just dabbling in sort of like pro-Trump memes and stuff like that, Facebook's algorithm is throwing QAnon group recommendations at you. Hey, you should join this group. You should do this. Yeah. Or, or something adjacent that sort of leads you further down, down the rabbit hole. Um, and that happens on a lot of different platforms, but in, on Facebook, there feels like there's this real straight line you can draw from that decision by Mark Zuckerberg to create meaningful communities. And there's a, there's a line he has at the end of the, of the whole like speech that he gave. And he's, it's something to the effect of I'll, I'll butcher it here, but it's like when you build these meaningful communities, you never know where they'll go. And it's like Ooh. all these exciting, <laughs> all these exciting possibilities. And it's just another one of those examples of like not seeing the negative externalities here. Right. And so now I, recent reports estimate that there could be what millions of participants in these groups. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I wanted to write the column was that like last week was a pretty big week for QAnon in like sort of the mainstream consciousness, right? Uh, and for people taking it seriously. And one of the biggest reasons, one of the reasons why I have always been hesitant whether or not to write about the phenomenon is its size. With these types of things, it's very difficult to get a footprint, to really know what you're dealing with. So, you know, if QAnon is 45 people who are just really loud and building, you know, sock puppet accounts to amplify their stuff, then of course, like, you know, you don't want to give that um, credence. But this report, uh, first reported by NBC News, uh, yeah, revealed that there are, you know, 
potentially millions of, of people. They're not sure how many of these groups and people overlap, but it's, you know, it seems to be around between one and three million people or accounts rather. And, and it's just the first glimpse at what seems to be just this massive growing movement that actually is a, a meaningful percentage of, you know, online Americans. So have any of these networks, especially Facebook, changed their methods recently to actually reduce the amount of QAnon content people get in their feeds? Facebook is looking into it. This is part of this was part of an audit that Facebook was doing. I think, you know, depending on on how charitable you want to be towards the organization, uh, I tend to fall towards the less charitable. You know, they, they started looking into this very recently, you know, this summer. This has been going on for a very long time. Uh, you know, the conspiracy is three years old, but, you know, the, the supercharged sort of Facebook-centric nature of it, you could see the contours of that being reported in late 2018. So you're looking at two, you know, two years of sort of neglect here. But they are doing something. You know, this this report is part of sort of, of understanding this. Twitter and YouTube have sort of announced more formalized crackdowns or, or attempts to sort of, you know, curb the spread of this via recommendations. You know, there's this there's this ban, ban evasion, cat and mouse that's always happening. And so it feels like, you know, the platforms tend to be a step behind here. Last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene won her primary race in Georgia and became a likely member of the next Congress. Taylor Greene would be the first likely congressperson to really believe in Q. So what do you think happens to this movement when some of their own are actually in power? I, I think, I mean, it's it's dark. It's dark stuff we're dealing with here. Um, I think what is fascinating about this movement as it pertains to like politics uh, is I think you have this real spectrum from you know, true believers, which it seems that Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene is a true believer, like her old blog posts that have been resurfaced, seem to illustrate someone who's bought in here. But there's this huge spectrum. And the other side of the spectrum is just like really craven people who, you know, want either the publicity or think that they can, you know, achieve their political goals by latching onto this as like, you know, as a constituency. And this is where I think that the tie-in with Facebook and the social platforms, you know, uh, Reddit, Twitter, YouTube, I think it's meaningful is that these platforms have allowed these communities to flourish on here. And by doing that, they've you know provided this infrastructure like QAnon groups know how to sort of you know juice the algorithm they know how to make things go viral they know how to gather around hashtags they know how to work the recommendation algorithms that's a powerful thing for somebody who's running for congress you know that's a powerful group to court uh because they can give you that visibility uh it's good for fundraising it's good for you know whatever and so i think that there's this huge spectrum. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. Are people going to latch on to the QAnon movement, get elected as sort of, you know, Freedom Caucus Tea Party style, you know, folks, and then just kind of leave it behind a little bit and then come back to it when, you know, they need to run again uh, and sort of, you know, wink and nod at it and not really care? Or are you going to see the rise of people who legitimately want to create, you know, a QAnon caucus who are going to be launching congressional investigations into child trafficking against, uh, you know, Democrats and George Soros and people like that. I mean, I, I don't really know where it goes. I mean, I, that's why I think what's fascinating about this moment is like, 
what are Republicans going to do in response? Like, I understand the people who say, you know, look at their embrace of Donald Trump. It's not like, you know, they're, they're not very good lately at putting up guardrails here. But at the same time, you know, this is a movement that is, that is very powerful that is in, in terms of its, its influence. Uh, and that is pretty far afield of, you know, the mainstream. And so it, it's, it, I'm very curious to see whether or not they just sort of try to brush this under the rug. And then I think they have a real problem on their hands. Or if some people say like, okay, we're drawing the line at spirit cooking, sex trafficking, dungeons, and pizza parlors. So community, a lot of people have friends and family who have gotten pulled into this community. What advice, if any, do you have for them about trying to extricate them, get them out of this QAnon mindset again? That's really difficult. A lot of people are dealing with this right now. Um, and I think it speaks a little bit to the seriousness of it. I would say this idea of community is important in keeping in mind that you need to be empathetic. Like just because this is such an outlandish set of conspiracy theories, people tend to sort of, you know, point and laugh or, you know, just call people crazy for getting involved in this. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons that that, that someone might want to join a a community like this. And a lot of them are, are very serious people who feel left behind people who are, you know, depressed, who have, you know, no job prospects, who are scared about the state of the world, about the government, about politics, all these different things. And I think that it's really important to be mindful that this is serving some kind of, you know, real purpose for them that gives them meaning and to be mindful of that. So I think like, I think I don't have any good answers for anyone out there as to like, you know, the, the phrase you can say to like snap them out of a trance. But I think the manner in which we engage with people on this needs, especially not like the ringleaders or the politicians, like just average folks who've gotten caught up in it. I think it needs to be based rooted in, in empathy and understanding and less in sort of, you know, shame. That's a really good point, Charlie. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and giving us all of this to think about. Yeah, stay safe out there, guys. Thank you. Okay, it's time for Meanwhile on the Internet. This is a tweet from the New York Times' Lindsay Krauss. She wrote, What is your unrealistic plan B career you fantasize about but that would require an entirely different life to launch? Her example was opening a restaurant specializing exclusively in Rhode Island heritage foods like Johnny Cakes, Clam Cakes, Cabinets, etc., Okay, so I had no idea what a cabinet was until like two seconds ago when our producer, Alan, informed me that it's basically Rhode Island's Frappuccino, like a milkshake with some coffee in it. So delicious. And my uh, roommate from college is going to be so upset with me. She's from Rhode Island. I feel like this is something I should have retained in life. (laughs) I did not. I'm sorry. (laughs) What a good question, though. I'm thinking really hard about what it would be. I know. It's really good. I feel like mine is just like super like realistic and that I'd be like, Okay, well, what I my second plan B, if not journalism, mm-hmm. was that I wanted to be a physical therapist. Okay. <laughs> and and so I feel like my realistic self would just be like, okay, back to college we go to become a physical therapist. But and that like completely tracks for me because my mom has always described my like dreams and hopes as like super grounded. hilariously realistic and grounded, like the earth side I am. One time, like when I was like when I was like 24 Mm -hmm. or something like that, I was like, I just want to have enough money that I can like have sushi whenever I want and get massages. And my mom was like, she was was like, you can get that. (laughs) (laughs) I know that. So 
I graduated during the last recession into the workforce. And so I had no idea what I wanted to do with my international relations degree. So my backup plan B in my head was, what if I opened up a restaurant that just specialized in brunch items? Like, forget the rest of the food, just breakfast and brunch were open only to like three o'clock. And that's like what (laughs) what my life is. A lot of the responses from these have been food related. And I'm like, mine's boring, physical therapist. I need to get into food. You do, but I, 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 I appreciate yours for the fact that it's achievable, though. Like, yes, it would require an entirely different life. Going back to undergrad, doing like med school or whatever physical therapists need to do. Do they have to go to med school? Yeah. No, I don't think so. You do need more schooling. You need more than four years. But I don't think you need to go to to medical school. I will say another like one that I think about all the time if I'm just ready to like live a more like outdoor life is that I've thought about being an assistant as my dad's like assistant PE coach. Oh, that'd be really sweet. And so he'd be the PE coach. I'd be the assistant PE coach. And then also I'd like walk dogs. That's my like, that's my outdoor dream. Casey, Casey, <laughs> what you're, I can't with you. Okay. So, cause mine was something actually improbable. Like what if I wanted to go like live out in the woods somewhere and like be a farmer or something like, no, that I would perish as a farmer. I would not have survived. <laughs> I would clearly not be able to like grow enough crops. I'd, I'd grow like one good crop. I have like corn. I'm set on corn, everything else <laughs> entirely unself-sufficient. So I'm going to... That's all you need. I'm going to stick with journalism for now until the industry fully collapses. You know what? I think that's smart for you. Okay. If you have a plan B career that you fantasize about, we want to hear about it. Open the voice memo app on your phone and give us all the deets. Then email that file to newsoclock at buzzfeed.com. That's newsoclock, all one word. Or you can just DM us on Twitter. We're at newsoclock on there too. That's it for today. Join us tomorrow when House Oversight Committee Chair Carolyn Maloney will be with us to talk about her committee's work investigating the Postal Service. And remember dog walking is a real dream and I just need to remember to buy a lot of sunscreen because I think I'm going to have a really bad farmer's day. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. You can listen while you walk your dogs. <laughs> What event comes once a year and could change how you see the world around you? The answer? When your vision benefits renew. And now that they have, there's no better time to visit your neighborhood Pearl Vision, where they'll cover your out-of-pocket cost or insurance copay for your eye exam. Schedule your family's eye exams at pearlvision.com. Valid prescription required. Valid at participating locations. Restrictions apply. Taxes extra. See store for details. Ends 4-30-2022. Exams available at the Independent Doctors of Optometry at or next to Pearl Vision. Some doctors employed by Pearl Vision. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.